the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I am great. Thank you very much. We are here in uh, my office this week. Yes, um, his illustrious office, which overlooks, has a beautiful view. Next time you know you're in town, yeah, stop by Frank's by, office. Just drop by. Stop yeah. by, say hi, and, and check out the view from Frank's Frank's window, which yeah, is amazing. Great views of Edinburgh, but uh, yes, we're in my office this week, so you might occasionally hear sirens because sometimes we have we hear ambient sirens. noise here in, um, in the city center. But, right. But, uh, so I apologize preemptively for that, but for reasons that we don't need to go into, we're recording in my office this week. This is our remote location for our studio. Right. Uh, today marks the end of what is probably the most important term the Supreme Court has ever had, or the most, at least, controversial, historic, I don't know. This, there's been a lot of decisions this, this term that have been monumental, um, including not only the uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women Health, Kennedy versus uh, Bremerton School District, the case about guns in New York, the case about Native American sovereignty, etc., etc., etc. At the same time that these decisions have come down, there's been um, a significant drop in public opinion about the court. A recent Gallup poll suggests that public confidence in the court is at an all-time low, at least since the Gallup organization started polling. Only 25% of Americans have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the court. Uh, so we want to talk about, about confidence in the court and confidence in institutions more broadly and, and what this sort of says about where, where we are right now. Yeah, that's right, David. I mean, we're not going to discuss the specific decisions themselves in great detail, as significant as they mm. are, in part because we have uh, discussed some of these issues in, in recent episodes so much as, I mean, what, what, what fascinates me about this moment and, and intrigues me, and I, um, well, I have thoughts, <laughs> is the potential crisis of legitimacy we're seeing, not just in the court, but in the organs of government more generally, and even beyond government in the United States. There's a you know, the people question the legitimacy of the media, for example, or the news media, rather. Uh, and so I think uh, taken together, it seems to me that the United States is facing a crisis of legitimacy as institutions mm -hmm. that have historically been long trusted uh, are now being called into question. So I think the court is a very good example. These decisions that we've seen uh, that have come down in the past two weeks are momentous, there's no doubt about that, and are, will change the landscape, um, legal and political and social of the United States for the foreseeable future. But what, and they're significant because of that, of course, but one of the things that really interests me is the fact that in most cases, the decisions the court has rendered are unpopular. They are at odds with what the majority of Americans seem to think on the, on the issues in question. Uh, and, and I'm wondering whether, uh, what I wonder about what I want us to discuss today mm. is the degree to which decisions like these uh, will call the legitimacy of the court uh, into, into question. And I, again, I think there's a broader issue of legitimacy more generally in the United States. Mm. And I guess what I would ask you to think about and ask our listeners to think about as we have this discussion is, once an institution loses its legitimacy, hmm. can it reacquire it? And if so, how does it reacquire it? And are there any historical precedents for this? And, and because yeah. I think we, we're, we're facing a reckoning in the United States, not just of the court, but beyond that. And, and I think this question of legitimacy is at the heart of it. I think, I think that's very well said. I think there is a crisis of legitimacy broadly about, about whether 
the institutions in the United States, whether those are governmental institutions or other kinds of institutions, are doing the job that they are intended to do or people believe that they are supposed to do. I think the intriguing thing about the court is that until relatively recently, there was at one point in, in both of our memories a, a time in which there was a lot of confidence in the Supreme Court, that that was the branch of government that people had some degree of faith in um, vis-a-vis relative to, to the presidency and, and to Congress. You know, if you look at the, the Gallup poll numbers from the, the, the 80s and the 90s in particular, you'll see that, uh, you know, the people liked Congress when their party was in power and didn't like Congress when their party wasn't in power and they did like the president. Whereas there seemed to have been across the board a relatively high level of confidence in the legitimacy of, of the Supreme Court as being something sort of above politics and, and, and that the court was an institution that you could trust to come up with a legitimate you know, uh, rulings based on jurisprudence or whatever. Right, I mean, we know, we're gonna discuss this a little bit today, how political the court has been since mm. its inception. However, the version of it that certainly I was taught in school, and you probably go and yeah. in social studies or civics, and some of our listeners would have had is, okay, the, the presidency and, the, and Congress are always political. They're partisan uh, institutions because uh, the, the people who hold those offices are, are partisans. But the court, although its members were appointed, are appointed and approved by those institutions, mm. was meant to be above this. And what we've seen in recent years is it's lost that. <coughs> right. And, well, I mean, I think the high point of that kind of confidence in the court, I think, is in, is in my mind, at least, in the, in the Rehnquist court, where there's a huge amount of effort put to saying, look, we are nine justices, we have different opinions about things, but we put our brains together and come up with a... a constitutional rationale for our our decisions that are not based on politics and they're not responsive to public opinion. This is a relationship, I think, between the court and public opinion is an interesting one. Rehnquist says uh, in, in 92, uh, the judicial branch derives its legitimacy not from following public opinion, but from deciding by its best lights whether legislative enactments of the popular branches of government comport with the Constitution. Yeah, and that's interesting. So, so one answer to, to the question I raised hmm. about the legitimacy of the court and saying, look, these decisions are all unpopular, hmm. is look, that's the court's role. It's supposed to take... All of its decisions yeah. are, in some ways, an, un, anti-democratic. Right, because right, it's an anti-democratic institution, but it's meant to be act as a referee, right? Hmm. Calling balls and strikes. And that's a rhetoric that... Uh, uh, the, yeah, <laughs> no. that, that, that's a, a rhetoric that they, you know starts really in the 80s and 90s, if you look at sort of confirmation hearings, where they... All of them performatively say, "Look, I'm not political in any way. I don't have a political bone in my body. I I'm an umpire," which is all of us knew was a lie, but but it was sort of a, a, a lie that people engaged in. And therefore, taking if the court takes an unpopular decision, hmm. uh, that could be seen as evidence of it doing its job. To be sure. Uh, having said that, to have a series of decisions come down, and they I mean it was. It's been more or less every other day for two weeks. Um, they uh, are basically remaking the landscape of American life mm. in many cases against the uh, 
opinion of the majority of Americans, right. so is, I, I think, unprecedented. And this is where, in terms of the, the Dobbs case, you know, that, that um, John Roberts, the Chief Justice, would have preferred a kind of in incremental chipping away hmm. at abortion rights. But the conservatives on the court said, no, no, we're going to you know, basically take an axe to the, this tree and take it down right now. Yeah. There's an interesting line that's buried in the opinion, um, in, in Alito's opinion, in, in Dobbs. It's on page 67, for those of you who are reading along at home. He says, we cannot allow our decisions to be affected by any extraneous influences such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. You know, I think they recognize we're going to make unpopular decisions. We don't care. Right. And I think other courts at other points in time have, have paid more attention to public opinion. They, they might say, look, we're going to root our decisions based on, on law, but we're going to recognize that we are living in a world with other people and we understand that what people think matters. Because um, as you point out, some of these decisions are very unpopular. 79% of New Yorkers uh, responded saying that the, the gun law that the court struck down a couple weeks ago, they wanted to keep the gun law. So it was a very popular law struck down. Um, and so I think you know, the, the, the sequence of, of the... the both this, the, of these decisions has really undercut the legitimacy uh, of, of the court. Um, lots of people have said this. Elizabeth Warren said it on uh, ABC's This Week. She said, this court has lost legitimacy. They've burned whatever legitimacy they may have had after their gun decision, after their voting decision, um, and with the uh, abortion decision. And that was before they went after separation of church and state. They, to be sure, yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. You're, you're correct that the kind of modern conception of the court, and I think we were both raised with that, as being above politics, is just that. It's modern. Yes. And we've kind of taken a turn. Can you briefly maybe go back and just uh, give us some examples of when the court was considered not above politics? Well, I think in the, a couple of things to recognize about the court in, in, the, in the 19th century. You know, it is, you know, the court's role... Obviously, is changing. It's you know, not until Marbury versus Madison the courts the court starts to embrace judicial review as something they have the power to do. The court is changing a lot, but one of the things that strikes me as sort of a metaphor about where the court was, especially in the first half of the nineteenth century, you know, when the court met in say eighteen twenty. I do not. David often asks, poses these these trivia questions, questions to me, and I, I and I don't know. They met in the basement of the Capitol. They did not have their own building. The president has his own building. Congress has it, and they get the nice. They were in the basement, right? And I think that sort of metaphorically says something about where the court was, right? The court doesn't have a lot of power. It's a good thing they weren't in the basement of the Capitol on January six, twenty twenty-one. The the Capitol's been renovated multiple times since then. Anyway, um, <laughs> exactly. Um, the you know they they don't declare that many laws unconstitutional in the 19th century, like in the first half uh, between 1803 and 1857, they strike down two federal laws. So it's not something, you know, judicial reviews mean that exists, but they don't use it very often. Obviously in the past week, they've struck down on any number of measures. They may strike some other things down today. Um, but I think it was recognized that the court was a political institution inhabited by by political animals and there were political responses to the court and the court is you know wrestling with its legitimacy 
um, and wrestling to sort of prove itself as a legitimate co-equal branch of government. Um, you know, one of the striking cases to me that sort of seems similar to the situation we're in now uh, is what happens in the aftermath of McCullough versus Maryland, which I think is a one of the most important decisions that the court makes uh, in the first half of the 19th century. Right. Give us a little bit okay. of that. Okay, so the, the, the Cliff now. Notes version of, of, of uh, McCullough versus Maryland. Okay, so everyone knows about the first bank of the United States, Alexander Hamilton. That one dies. They install a second bank of the United States after the War of 1812. The state of Maryland decides to tax out-of-state located banks that are in operating in Maryland, which includes the Bank of the United States. So the state of Maryland is taxing this entity of the of the federal government. And, and the question is whether they, they can do this and, and what is the sort of, you know, uh, relative uh, effect, uh, you know, for, there were two constitutional questions. One is, can the government create a bank? And the second is, can Maryland tax it? Uh, and what Justice uh, Marshall uh, decides in this, in this case is, first, the government can create a bank because of the Necessary and Proper Clause, um, but also Maryland cannot tax the bank because to tax the bank, is, as he says, the, it gives, the power to tax is the power to destroy. Uh, and so you can't have states imposing upon the federal government in that way. It's a massively unpopular decision in the South, especially among uh, the, the one wing of the Democratic Party. Um, the sort of Richmond wing of the Democratic Party hates this decision, um, which is ironic because Marshall's from that part, neck of the woods. He's from Richmond. But he, um, there's a whole series of editorials that says, look, this is the worst decision the court has ever made. The court hasn't been around very long. We need to not only sort of reject this decision, but reject the court itself. Um, the Virginia legislature drafts a resolution instructing its congressional delegation to mount a campaign to put brakes on the court somehow. Um, there's an effort to abolish the Supreme Court, to potentially repeal the Judiciary Act of 1789 that creates the Supreme Court and maybe say replace it with something else. They talk about having a court where it's the chief justices of all the state Supreme Courts or just having state Supreme Courts and let them decide things and not have a, a federal court of all of any strength or power. There is a real sort of crisis of legitimacy uh, that starts with McCullough versus Maryland but then sort of runs throughout the, the 1820s. Um, we can think about the, the cases involving Native Americans where, you know, John Marshall rules one way and, and uh, you know, Andrew Jackson supposedly probably didn't, but, you know, the, the trope is he said, you know, Mr. Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it, suggesting that, you know, Jackson is, is delegitimizing the, the court's authority. The court, of course, has, you know, all it has is its legitimacy. It doesn't have an army. It doesn't have any money. It doesn't have any guns or any power. All it has is people's willingness to listen to what it has to say and take take its rulings seriously. And I think you know a court that is delegitimized, you end up with a situation where the court says something and then the president says, "Yeah, or, or we're going to do something else instead." And and I think that's one peril of, of delegitimizing the court. 
Well, I mean, those are all great examples, but I would qualify them slightly to say that um, most of those controversial decisions in the early first half of the 19th century in particular, uh, the, the opposition to them is often, well, it's often partisan, but it's also um, regionally based, is that fair? Yes. Whereas the potential crisis the court is facing now, maybe we'll be wrong about this, maybe Americans will love these decisions and think the direction the court is taking the country is, is the direction mm. they want the country to go in. I don't think so, but we have to allow for that possibility. But I think the difference between then and now is the opposition of these decisions is universal in the sense that it's spread across the country. It's not the same in every single state and every single locality. Uh, but but I, I think you get, uh, there's national opposition to them as opposed to just regional opposition. Is that fair? You're giving me a quizzical look. Well, I think there are... You know, are, are or let me put it another way: the support for them is regional, the mm. opposition is national. Whereas in the early nineteenth century, maybe the support for the decisions was national with regional opposition. So I think I think okay. the, I think it's been flipped. Does that make sense? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that that's well, there's a couple of big differences though. One is the kinds of things the court has been or has been ruling about in the past fifty years, are of a different nature of things than. The court was dealing with in the early 19th century. All the early 19th century stuff, it's about like contract law and federalism and you know the relationship between the you know, this relationship between the states and the federal government, the relationships in states and each other, etc. etc. That that kind of stuff. You know, for the past 50 years, the court has been ruling about who can get married to whom and what the terms of those marriages are, who is considered, you know, what are the rights of the accused. They've been obviously talking about reproductive rights. They've been things that are much more personal and much more, you know, the court is reaching into people's lives in a way that McCullough versus Maryland doesn't. That's right. People might get hot and bothered about the Bank of the United States. But there it is. People get hot, very hot. The tariff, man, that's like a real thing. But it's a, it's a different kind of thing. It's not the same thing as your sex life and who you can choose to marry. Yes, to be sure. Um, and, you know, but I think one, one thing that is very similar between the court then and, and, and now and then is that I think the court really is, the, the veil about the, the, the apolitical court has really dropped, right? I don't think there's any sense that, that even the, some of the, the shroud of, of, of impartiality where they went to the opera together and then had disagreements about, you know, political... I don't think these nine people are hanging out together in their free time. Um, no, I mean, the, the, the dissents are, are now, you know, they're basically flame-mailing each other by yes. these decisions and, and, the, and, the, and well, their opinions. And I think actually in the aftermath of the leak of the um, abortion opinion, you know, I think that that caused a lot of internal bad blood within the court as people they're still trying to figure out how that happened. I think there's not a whole lot of thinking about people's trust in the institution. I'm not sure the institution trusts in itself uh, in the same way. Well, and this goes to the question I began mm. with, which is um, uh, the court's important. Of course, the court is important. Mm. But I think there's a 
bigger crisis of legitimacy that's unfolding um, across the, particularly within the federal government and Americans' attitude towards the various branches of the government, but more broadly in the culture. Yes. And I think the court, I think the story of the court is, a, is an aspect of this and it illustrates it, but it's not the only aspect of it. Uh, so, for example, in the early 19th century, the presidency is not as important as it is now, but people weren't necessarily questioning the legitimacy of the presidency or Congress in that period when they were questioning the court, talking about abolishing the court. That's right. Right? Whereas now, we have the, you know, I alluded to this a minute ago, but, you know, the January 6th hearings are going on. Uh, but we Which have are, a, but listeners, if you're not listening to that as well, you're missing out some on some really juicy stuff. But Yeah, but the... What's interesting is Fox News is giving it minimal coverage and mm. 35% of the population that refuses to accept the outcome of the last election mm. are basically not following those hearings or if they are, they're not accepting what they're seeing. And that, again, is, speaks to what I see as this crisis of legitimacy. You know, the Watergate hearings, which we've discussed mm. in the past, we've talked about... Uh, important congressional hearings in the past. But the Watergate hearings were, were kind of epiphany because most Americans, including Republicans in that case, you know, accepted what they were seeing and turned against the president. I mean, the Watergate hearings were the end of Richard Nixon. Um, the January 6th hearings are really, really important, I think, and, and I agree with you about their, their significance and, and that people should be watching them. But they, I mean, I realize Trump is not currently president, mm. they will not have the, that same effect but because, again, I'll use the word legitimacy, yeah. approximately one-third of the American people don't accept the legitimacy of the hearings and don't believe what, what, what the hearings are yeah. revealing. They just don't. And, again, looked at the other way, there, there are other issues mm. where the, the distrust comes from the left. But, but so we're facing, again, I think there's a, there's a questioning of institutions going on mm -hmm across the board that's not just it's not limited to the court but it, it's 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 broader than that and i think that does make this moment different uh, on this podcast i tend to be the one who says to oh, let's not panic it's not that bad i i think this is a very bad moment oh i've been panicking for years so. i know you, you, you we, we've got a 200 plus episode it's a me panicking <laughs> and me saying there there david don't worry about this uh listeners you have to decide for yourself who is more um <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, but 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 I I think this this crisis of legitimacy is is really profound, and so therefore I'm interested in how institutions get their legitimacy back. Yeah, and the, maybe the courts instructed in this or not. Well, so I think the courts are, are different in some ways, in part because it's not a democratic institution, right? People can have a bad president, a bad Congress, and they can say, look, we don't like that guy. But we can elect somebody else, and then that will be better. So they don't blame the institution for the shortcomings uh, of the person who, people who are, are in those institutions. The court, though, because it is an anti-democratic institution, you know, how do you fix it? Makes it much harder for people to, to uh, especially given lifetime tenure and all these kinds of things, uh, makes it very hard for. It makes the legitimacy work in a very different way. Um, you know, and I think the the I mentioned sort of earlier. You know, this period when 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 the Supreme Court did have a lot of legitimacy, they are rebuilding there after a period of time 
when the court was had been delegitimized in many people's eyes, right? That in in the uh, Warren court and the Berger court, there's a series of decisions that makes some people very angry, starting with you know Brown versus Board of Education, you know uh, Roe versus Wade, Miranda, you name it. There's a whole bunch of them, right? And there's a whole movement to impeach Earl Warren. Uh, there are people who want to to abolish the Supreme Court. Then there's obviously massive resistance to the court. You know, and I think there's a very concerted effort after that to, you know, by Rehnquist and, and others uh, to, to try to step back from that kind of, of jurisprudence, um, partially for political reasons, but also partially to try to maintain the legitimacy of the court. Um, and so I think we could, you know, it takes time and it takes a lot of effort. It takes lots of... Uh, Group pictures of all the justices, you know, sitting in a, you know, in rows smiling, uh, which I think is a way of saying, look, we may all be different, but we're also all in this together. Which is clearly those pictures are a kind of fiction. Um, but you know, the court has made some decisions over that period of time to to remove itself as much as it could from the political process. You know, they decided not to televise Supreme Court um, arguments. At the same time that Congress was deciding to televise all of Congress, right, and so there, 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 there's very clear choices being made as the court was going into the future. Um, thinking though about your sort of bigger point about the delegitimization of of not only this one institution but institutions more broadly, I mean, I can think of a time when that did happen, and that was you know in the eighteen fifties, and at that. Those institutions got delegitimized enough where, you know, a, a fair number of Americans decided that, that the United States itself was no longer functioning their interests and they needed to establish a new country. And listeners know how that went. Um, I don't want to be sort of say we're in 1857, but sometimes it feels like 1857. 1857 or 1877, David. I mean, uh, because I, I've seen both arguments made. Some people saying, no, no, we, we are in the 1850s. You know, the, the, there's a crisis in the country and, and the pressure is building, etc., etc. And then, you know, as though we're mm. on the verge of civil war. I, well, we might want to discuss that. Uh, but I've also had a, heard a compelling case from, from historians of the, of the latter part of the 19th yeah. century uh, saying, no, no, this is more like either the end of Reconstruction or the Gilded Age, where we're seeing an assertion of basically minority rule yeah. in large parts of the well, country. So I've been thinking about this a lot. About, uh, you know, are we in 1857? Are we at Dred Scott? Or are we in 1893 with Plessy versus Ferguson? Can you explain what those short sure, hands sure. mean? Okay, so, yes, I was, I was just about to, but thank you oh, for that. So uh, Dred Scott, of course, you know, Dred Scott is this, is this very important is decision uh, made by the Supreme Court uh, in 1857 uh, involving uh, a man named Dred Scott and his wife who were taken to a free state and a free territory. I won't bore you with the legal detail. I think I've done that in previous episodes. Um, the Chief Justice Roger Tawney, though, in the decision says that African Americans are not citizens of the United States. That going into a free state and a free territory uh, does not make them free and that African-Americans have no rights that any white man is bound to respect, to use his words. It's a 
fundamentally divisive decisions, the worst decisions the Supreme Court's ever made, and they've made a bad number of bad decisions, but this is, uh, by most historians' accounts, the worst. But it leads pretty directly, in my mind, to secession and, and, and the Civil War. Right. To a, a cataclysmic dis, you know, event that culminates in some ways in the end, culminates in the end of slavery. So you have, you know, a fissure and a break, and, and then a sort of resetting, if you will. Or are we in Plessy versus Ferguson, the decision uh, in the 1890s that, in which the Supreme Court legitimizes segregation and legitimizes African Americans becoming second-class citizens, even if they're saying they're equal in all you know, it's creating a framework, a legal framework, uh, and for segregation that exists uh, until the fifties and sixties. So for a very long time. And so, by extension, what I'm saying is, is this decision? Am I thinking that we're going to have a civil war in three or four years? That's going to actually sort of for these cultural fissures that we have right now over all of these issues: guns, abortion, um, you know, what have you, are all the religion. Um, are those going to come to a fore and, and going to lead to some kind of, 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 you know, traumatic resolution? Or are we in a place where the court is going to make a decision that, that in effect, in, in Plessy versus Ferguson, stripped away the rights of a huge number of Americans, and those rights remain taken away for, you know, the next 50, 60, 70 years? And you know which what's the the sort of direction the court's going to is is going to the country going to do in its response to these court decisions? And I can see both of those happening, and I'm depressed about those are the two choices in my head because I don't like either option. Are they the only choices? <sighs> Lay me out with some alternative choices here, Frank. Right. Okay. Um... The court will change. It takes a while, and and um, the uh, conservatives have have waged an incredibly effective campaign, and we've talked about this mm. before over the past four or five decades to change the direction of the court by paying attention to um, local elections and um, congressional elections, and ultimately presidential elections, and and they have really made shifting the focus of the court, particularly on issues like abortion, the center of their the centerpiece of, of a lot of their campaigning and it's been incredibly effective. And we see the results and we know about you know Trump made three appointments to the court and there was the blocking of Merrick Garland's nomination uh, under President Trump, etc. President Obama. Um, but but we don't need to entertain the details of this. Nobody lives forever. No court is forever. And what could happen is that we end up with a more centrist or, or an even more liberal court um, as time passes. That's a possibility. Okay. Uh, well, that same thing happened in 1857. They got a more liberal court eventually, but they had to fight a big war first. Right. But well, I'm not sure it's a healthy way to speculate. I, again, I think one of the crucial differences between the 19th century mm. uh, political divisions within the United States and contemporary political divisions in the United States is that the mid-19th century political divisions 
easily, relatively easily mapped onto the country, and I mean literally mapped. You could, you know, there were free and slave states, and I know it was more complicated than that, but, but, but it wasn't <laughs> in the sense that, um, and what we have today, while there are real, there are geographic areas mm. where certain views prevail, every single one of the 50 states that comprise the United States has within its borders people and yeah. who have profoundly different political opinions. Now they may the numbers of them and the proportion of them vary greatly, but in, in you know Massachusetts has Trump supporters and Mississippi and Texas have people who are quite progressive and support uh, sure. you know, abortion rights, etc. I know that was true in the nineteenth century too, but 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 I I think it we don't the geography is different. Okay. The geography of political division is very very different today. Which you can have a war in the nineteenth century because you knew free states from slave states in a way you could recognize them on a map, and the the governments of those states acted accordingly. It's less it, it it's it's messier today. Oh, to be sure, if there if there is a civil war part two, let's hope there isn't. It's going to be a lot messier, and it's going to be a very different kind of war on all kinds of levels. Um, that doesn't mean it's out of the question that was a possibility. Because I think, you know, the, this question about legitimacy, you know, is, you know, the government only works if, if, if people see it as legitimate. That's right. That's how democracies work. Work, right. And, and the courts in particular, because they are... You know the branch without without any guns and out any money, um, you know if, if a particular state says ah, no we we're just not doing we're doing a, a different thing, you know or if a local officials say no we we know the court said this we're going to do something else, you know that's going to create certain kinds of crises of legitimacy, you know one of the the things that strikes me is. Uh, thinking back about to these examples uh, is is the integration of Little Rock Central High School, where the court in Brown versus Board of Education said you got to integrate the school. You know the 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 officials in Little Rock said no, we're not. I'm oversimplifying complicated things here. You know the, the court said no, you need to integrate your schools. And President Eisenhower sent the military to enforce the court decision, and he said. In doing so, I'm not doing this because I agree with the court's decision. That's not an issue. The issue is that the legitimacy of the court, and I'm going to support the legitimacy of the court. What happens then in a similar situation in which the president doesn't support the legitimacy of the court in that question, right? And then and says, actually, I'm not going to send in the army to enforce whatever it is, right? What happens to, to, to them? What happens if the state of Texas says, oh, well, the president's not doing this. We're going to do it instead. I think there's all kinds of, fed, you know, really complicated and, and messy federalism questions that are going to come out in the next decade as a consequence, in part uh, of the decisions that came down this week, but also this crisis, broader crisis of legitimacy you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think war is likely, civil war in the United States. I think political violence is likely and indeed has already occurred. We've seen this from January 6th. Mm. So I think what we will see well, is... What's the difference between those two things? I, I think you... 
I think it's it's about scale and scope. Okay. I, 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 I think we've seen violence in the United States, David, in recent years, and we continue to see some. We have not seen more. I mean, to be sure. Yeah, I, I, the question I mean, then is I, when does that, you know, when does well, the Well, I, I think, well, and one of the, yeah, but one of the crucial differences is, is the capacity of the state to engage in violence. Yes. And the United States, the federal government in the United States, still has an overwhelming preponderance of force and ability to exercise that force. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there is no, at the moment, there is no possibility that any combination, any state or combination of states or combination of localities mm -hmm. can challenge the, the, the ability of the, of the United States government to exercise force. But what we do have, and we saw it, you know, the January 6th hearings are bringing out just the degree to which um, uh, as elements in American society are willing to resort to force to achieve their ends. I think we have that. I think we, we have a great capacity for political violence. And I think the United States, which has been relatively untouched by political violence for several decades, is about to enter a period when violence and the gun mm. might become a part of politics in a way that may, well, many Americans will think of as un-American. Take a historic, longer historical view. That's, that's I think our we would country. say yeah, that's yeah. not true. But you know, say, oh no, no, political violence happens in other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, that happens in Europe, or that happens uh, in other parts of the world. I, I think that um, I think that when because when institutions, when the legitimacy of institutions is called into question, people take matters into their own hands. And the court's decision recently on guns, for example, you know, means that... So the American carnage Trump talked about in his, in his inauguration five years ago is... Uh... Was a prophecy, perhaps. Exactly. I mean, so, so I think... I, 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 I don't think the United States will have a civil war in the way that it did in the 19th century. Uh, wars feel kind of 19th century and old-fashioned and kind of, uh, you know... Uh, you know, inappropriate, but, but I, I think, uh, um, and rightly so, but I think that, uh, I, I think the capacity for violence in Americans to kill each other, mm. um, or the danger, the possibility of that, rather than capacity, they have the capacity thanks to the gun laws, but the, the possibility of them starting to kill each other over politics and political questions is quite serious. I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, uh, but I don't think that's the same thing as a war. It's not. And I think we'll see. We will see when, a, when you know. I think there's there is a threshold where it becomes a war, and it becomes a very different kind of war. Uh, but you know, when you start to have political assassinations, when you start to have, you know, the, the legitimacy of the courts so profoundly, you know, in question that, yeah. But however, yes. The United States has a very very violent past. Um, and and the, the law of the gun has been involved in American politics for far longer than, than people, I think, recognize. Uh, as I said, I think in the past four or five decades, we've had relative peace since 1968, say, uh, relative peace. And, and now we're, we're entering another more violent phase. But if institutions can reacquire legitimacy, mm. you know, this is not inevitable. To be sure. You know, and, and so I think... And, and I was talking to a very eminent historian yesterday, who's a good friend, and I, I, I asked them the same, I more or less said, hey, how do we change direction if, if nobody's accepting the legitimacy of any institutions? Um, you know, what needs to happen? 
And this individual suggested, well, a major kind of cataclysmic shock to the system, an almost existential crisis. And I said, oh, you mean like 9-11 or COVID? Yeah. <laughs> and they said, okay, fair point. But, but the, 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 and, and so I, maybe we need that kind of shock to bring us together. You joked before the episode, like we need mainly an invasion. Well, you know, but in, you know, in COVID the, has taught us that if we have exactly, an alien invasion, right. people are not going to go here. Yes, that, that, as, like as, as Independence Day. As long-time listeners know, I'm a, I'm a great fan of, of science fiction. And the trope is always humanity unites against this common foe of, of aliens doing whatever, right? And, and, and I think you're, you're entirely right that COVID has demonstrated that even when we face a common foe in the form of a virus, our capacity for splintering faction and, and, and fragmentation is, is profound. So uh, I, have, I have a flipping point to make, and then I want to make a more profound one, or a more significant one. The flipping point I'm making is, so you're suggesting that when the aliens come, Okay. Us, we're going to fight each other over toilet paper rather than band together to fight the aliens. That would yes, be the yes, that, 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 is my, that is my, my hypothesis. Okay, I want to flip this round and end on an optimistic note because that's usually my move here. Okay, good. And I'm being particularly uh, pessimistic in this episode and I apologize to listeners who, who tune in for my sunny disposition and my bromides. <laughs> uh, so, so I'll end with those, which is these... Views and these as represented in the decisions of the recent uh, the recent court decisions, but again, I think that I think the problem is more profound than that. So I don't want to fix, fixate on the court, but the the views represented there are minority views in the United States. The mm. majority of the American people don't adhere to them, and the majority of the American people are sensible people, and eventually, good sense will prevail. What we have at the moment in the United States are is the fact that the the minoritarian aspects of the Constitution, and by that I'm not talking about racial minorities or cultural minorities. I'm talking about a numerical majority in terms mm. of um, so the the undemocratic features of of the system, the Senate, the Supreme Court, for example. Um, are wielding undue influence, but there will be a correction because the majority of the people don't agree. And although the history of the United States has been ugly at times and, and there have been bumps along the way, mm. democracy will prevail in the end. Yeah. And, and that's the correction. And when that happens, institutions will reacquire their legitimacy. As the resident pessimist, now yeah. I'm so well, so here's here's one thing that I'm very concerned about is I'm not seeing many Americans, especially many young Americans, seeing a a political solution to the problems that we're facing. In as much as people who I don't see a, a, a wellspring of talented young define young however you want to people saying I need to enter a, a political life I need to enter a life of, of serving in government in a variety of forms to fix the problems that that, that the country and the world face um, so I think you need good people who are willing to work hard to, 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 to rebuild those kinds of legitimacy that, that I think the country's institutions need. 
But we work with, I agree with you, but yes. we work with and have the pleasure of working with really smart young people from around the world, including many of whom are from the United States. Yes. And they are smarter than we were when we were in, when we were in college or university. They're smarter than we are now. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, they're incredibly impressive. And they're yes. doing all kinds of things in there. And they're reconfiguring the world in really interesting and innovative ways. Yes. And they give me hope for the future. And I, you know, there are a lot of them out there. And they're not just in the United States. Yes. They are in the United States as well. And there, there are... They're, they're, again, I'm back to the the vast majority mm. of Americans yeah. are decent people. Yes, I agree. The thing I'm worried about is that those young, talented young people are saying, I want to help fix the world. But they are not saying, I want to fix the world by running for Congress. As To the same extent that they were maybe at other points in time in the recent past. I don't know how you measure that. I don't know how you measure that. It, that. It's a gut feeling. Uh, you're right. I, I, As a historical I, 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 question. I want to challenge the premise to that statement. I know because that, that second bit that, to the same degree they were in the past. I, 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 I've got to confess, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But I think, um, you know, this is a, if you will, the good Jefferson part mm. is the belief in the kind of in democracy and, and the, uh, the, the ability of the American people to get things right in the long run. Let's have faith in the long run, well, okay? Because the short run may not be we, good, we so good. To, we need to, because, but I'm, I, I am troubled by the fact that uh, the legitimacy of all of our institutions has, has been called into question in recent years, and it's not just a product of Trump and Trumpism. I mean, one can mm. argue that Trump and Trumpism are uh, expression, are products of this crisis of legitimacy and accelerated it, but they didn't cause it, they didn't create it. I mean, I think it's, it, it's deeper rooted than that. Yes. Um, and I don't think it's simply a partisan thing either. I, think, I actually think it, it's a crisis on the left and right. But we got to get back. we got to get it back. And it's not even a u- uniquely American thing. No, to be Social sure. media, this is a global problem, but this is a, this is a U.S. history podcast, so we're, that's what we're dealing with. I think, I think you're right that there is a, a definitely a global dimension to this. You've seen similar things in many places. Right, time for last drops. What you got? I want to end on a happier note. <laughs> and so I've got a happy last drop, which is I've become fascinated. About the demise of the Republic. Thanks, thanks to social media, I was, I was, I, I learned about an artist named Peter Waddell. Have you heard of this guy? I don't think so. Well, he's a New Zealand-born artist based in Washington, D.C., who paints quite really interesting and uh, lovely paintings. Um, uh, of Washington and its history in particular. And he's got a series of paintings that are available via the website of the White House Historical Association um, of kind of vignettes in the history of the White House and of Washington. So Trump throwing ketchup at the no, wall. No, 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 no. It's um, John Quincy Adams yeah, swimming. Okay. Uh, and there's one that particularly has taken my fancy, unsurprisingly, of Jefferson in his study in 1803. And it's great. There's a mockingbird flying around because Jefferson had a pet mockingbird. And, and he's talking to Meriwether Lewis, who acted as his private secretary uh, before he sent him out on the Lewis and Clark expedition. I mean, today, of course... Lewis would be giving testimony to the Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it, it, it's a really lovely painting. And these paintings, you can go on, I think there are 13 of them uh, on the White House Historical Association website. But they're, uh, they're, I want to uh, commend to you the paintings of Peter Waddell and, and, and the, uh, particularly the ones that are available on the website of the White House Historical Association.
Great. Uh, and they provide a kind of optimistic look at, um, at the history of the United history States. History as we'd like and, it to be as much. Well, yeah. But sometimes, it's a sunny day sometimes that's important. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes that's need... important. So, David, what about you? Um, so I think like many um, of our listeners, one of the things I've been trying to do in, in, in the past couple of weeks is try to read a lot more about the history of reproductive rights and, and, and how they fit into American culture and American law. Um, and one thing that I found really, really beneficial is the blog Nursing Clio, which has for many years done um, a lot of work on, on, on the history of motherhood and, and the history of reproductive rights. But they are putting together a reproductive history syllabus. We've seen this sometimes in the past, like with, with, there was a Charleston uh, syllabus that came out after the shooting there. Um, Seems like tragedies inspire great syllabi. Um, but it's a really great repository of things to read on the history of abortion and the history of reproductive rights uh, in the United States and around the world. And uh, it's great resources of, of both their blogs or other sources uh, around uh, different kinds of forms of media for people to, to dip into that's been very well curated. So I want to recommend that for people looking to educate themselves more on that topic. Excellent. Great. Congratulations, David. Cheers. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.